Good morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. As we continue our series in Messy, Loving Others Isn't Easy. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may attain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will be there for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have followed me. In the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your written word this morning. Continue to move in our presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is a missionary who arrived on the field. Brand new. He was given a car to go around, but the car uh, couldn't start. It was a stick, so you would have to get it pushed and pop the clutch to have the car start up. Now, he lived near a school, so he had some children come out by permission. And they pushed him one day, and he put it in the gear, popped the clutch, and the car started. He went around uh, making his rounds throughout the town that day. When he would stop, he would leave the engine running or parking on a hill. He would never kill the engine completely. Well, this went on for about two years. Same routine. And eventually he got sick and him and his wife had to leave the mission field. So a new missionary was appointed to that area. And so he was talking to this guy about how to drive the car. Okay, it won't start have someone push it, pop the clutch, and it will start. But while he's talking about this, 
The new guy went around the front of the car, popped the hood and said, hey, this cable was loose. So he fixed the cable. He got in the car. Car cranked right up. For two years, this guy had this whole routine set down about getting this car around town. But all he was missing was the power that was available to help the car start. In our story today, we find a young man who's similar to that situation. He is trying on his own to live a life that is pleasing to God, but he's still lacking something. Perhaps he is lacking the power of God in his life to love others self-sacrificially. We'll get to that in a moment. But he was trying to live a life pleasing to God on his own. But even in the text, we find out that he knows that perhaps something is lacking. Look what he asked Jesus right off the bat. Notice what the question does say. What good thing, what good deed must or shall I do to obtain eternal life? He's not asking, how do I, you know, do I, what do I do? But he's looking for one particular thing that he can do, some type of good work that he can do to earn his way in. Now, Matthew does give us a few details about this individual. In verse 20, he tells us he is a young man. That would be a, a man from about 20 years of age to perhaps as old as 40. In verse 22, he's described as one who owns much property. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, Luke describes this individual as a ruler, perhaps a synagogue official. And he asks that question, what good thing or deed? Now, does Jesus come out and tell him what to do? What's the first question that Jesus asked him? Why are you asking me about what is good? He is apparently seeking out why this young man is not satisfied. Satisfied with the Jewish answer to his question. That a person must do good things that God has commanded. And look what Jesus says. Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, Jesus is not saying he's sinful. That's not the point. What Jesus is doing is get off the workspace and let's go back to define what good is. So he's diverting the attention of the conversation to looking at what is divine goodness. How does God, the one who is good, define good? Because a lot of times what I define as good and you define as good do not measure up to what God's standard is. We get wrapped up in what we should or shouldn't do, almost a legalism about it. And God is saying, no, you can never be good enough. In fact, if you heard one of the prelude songs that she played earlier, no, not one. There is not a, no, none righteous, not one of us. It reminded me of, of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, because God does not judge us by our standards, but by his standards. In other words, the commandment, you should not kill. Have you killed anybody? Physically murdered somebody? But Jesus says, but if you look at someone with hatred in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart already. So, the standard of good is raised. And Isaiah 55, verse 8 and following, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
And notice the commands that he tells this young man. They're all external, can be observed. They're behavior that you can do. He says, do not commit murder, do not steal. These are all things that people can see on the outside. I want you to restress that point again that the focus here is now on what God defines as good. And notice what he says. Would you say this? I mean, this almost sounds like arrogance to some degree. All these things I've kept. But what am I still lacking? Now, perhaps he knows about the weightier things of the law that's discussed and debated in the temple because obviously he's there. Or perhaps he's looking for a loophole that he can ignore certain commands or not as as attractive to him as other commands. I mean, we're, we're, we're called and commanded to love one another, right? And that sounds good, but then we have that qualifier behind it, as Jesus loves you. We are to love one another un, with that unconditional agape love. We could all get behind this love one another, but when that qualifier comes, oh, wait a second. I mean, when people talk about me and spread rumors about me, I am to love them as Christ loves them. But notice that Jesus doesn't even question his answer. But he says, what am I lacking? So there is a sense, perhaps, in his heart that, okay, yes, I kept these commandments, but there's still, I have a sense that something's lacking in my life. And some of you in this room, perhaps, you've given your life to Christ some years ago. You've, you've come to church and you're involved in all these things. You're in the VBS. You help with camp. All these things are well and good, but in your heart of hearts, you're feeling like there is still something lacking. I, I don't. I don't have it. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something lacking. William Mounts, a well-known theologian and a, uh, author of commentaries, said this, quote, The uneasiness reveals an instinctive human awareness that legalism falls short of God's intention. We can get right in that legalism, okay? I've come to church. Check. I gave my tithe. Check. I said hello to everybody. Check. And we go down that checklist when God's saying, that's not what I'm after because God's after your heart. Because once your heart is changed, then everything else will follow. We're not changed from the outside in, ladies and gentlemen. We're changed from the inside out. Jesus doesn't challenge his claims. He doesn't have to convict this young man over confidence because he's already admitted to it by saying, what am I still lacking? And here it comes. I'm going to tell you right now, if you get down on your knees, you cry out where you're sitting today, God, what am I lacking? Be prepared for the answer that you might receive, just like this guy got. Look what it says. If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me. Two commandments and promises Two results for obedience. He must sell his possessions, give the money to the poor, and he is to follow Jesus in discipleship. And the result, he will receive the promise of eternal life. As Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. Now, giving up possessions without love won't profit you anything. 
But it's that type of love that's produced when we have a relationship with Christ. Because outside a relationship with Christ, I cannot love you the way God commands me to. I, I cannot give away which I do not possess. And as I experience the love of God in my life through Christ, that should overflow in me and over to you. But if I don't have that relationship, there's no way I can do it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Profits me nothing. So that has to be that love behind it. And look what it says. When the young man heard this, he's asking a question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? I kept all these commandments. What I'm still lacking? And Jesus tells him the answer. What he's looking for. But when he hears that answer, what does the text tell us? When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. This response uncovers the facet of this guy's life that is haunting him. He refuses to make such a radical financial sacrifice. Why is that? Look at the text. For he was one who owned much property. Now the NIV translates that great wealth. Now that's a little... Less literal, but too exaggerated, because the result is, you could be sitting in the pew right now, as I read this text, well, he must be richer than I ever was, because he is the rich, young ruler. But let's put that in context of the day. There was no middle class back in the first century. You're the rich or you're poor. There was no middle class. But that said, let's just take a look. Do you realize that over a billion people on this planet live on less than one dollar a day? We live a lot better than over half the world's population. Remember that movement, Occupy Wall Street? I came across an article that said the Occupy protesters live in better condition than the global poor. Most of them in Philadelphia are postponing moving until they can ascertain whether they'll have access to water and electricity. The very fact that we have clean running water is far above a lot of conditions that people find themselves around the world. In fact, there's a lot of missionaries going out who get in there by saying, we're going to provide you with clean drinking water. Let's tell you about the one who provides you eternal water that gives life. So before we look at this and kind of dismiss it, so I'm not rich. And by the way, I'll just give you a hint. This, this has nothing to do with money. The issue here is not money. The issue is the human heart. That's the whole issue that he's getting at here. So when you look at this young man, to him to have that property, he was considered rich in the eyes of the people of they. But how many people look at you and I as Americans, middle class Americans, and consider us to be rich? By some of their standards, where they're coming from, we are rich in a lot of ways. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and following says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we look to this 
reset time. What do we mean by reset? Well, you know, like a reset a computer. We want to reset our lives, get back to the basics, because everything we do here at Forestburg Baptist Church has to be girded, be built upon one fundamental thing, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That has to be the very core of what we're doing. We have nice lights now. Okay, maybe we don't. No one said amen. But what's the purpose of those lights so you can see? See what? So you can read the hymnal when we sing, but more importantly, that you can open up your Bible and read the Word of God. So everything that we do has to be girded, guided by that principle. What are we investing in? Are we investing in eternal matters? Or are we too busy wrapped up here on earth? We should never get so focused on all these programs and the building that we lose sight, what are they here for? Matthew 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? See, the just to jump to the chase, the problem this young man had, not the fact he was well off, he had a heart problem. Because you know why? He kind of loved himself more than he loved God and more, he loved, and more than he loved other people. That's the reason the title of this message is Self-Sacrificial Love. True Christian stewardship will examine mortgages, credit, giving, insurance, investment, and a whole areas of life that are not often brought under the Lordship of Christ. After he walks away grieving, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Truly I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is lamenting how hard it is for rich people to surrender to kingdom priorities. In his day, as in the early church and in parts of our world today, The poor have always been more responsive to the gospel because you know why? The well-to-do think they don't really need Christ. I can do it on my own. And think about that. When we're going through a good time in life, when things are clicking along, hey, uh, you know what? I I don't need God right now. God, you just sit over there. I'll call you if I need you. But when things turn bad, what happens? God, where are you at? And God's saying, Tim, I've been here the entire time. You're the one who walked away. Look what happened after 9-11. Churches were full after that those events. But when things got back to somewhat what we call normal, things just kind of went back to business as usual. So it's not really someone being rich or poor. The issue is the heart. Because a lot of times when we have, we think we have everything together, We don't give God the honor that he's due. See, either he's Lord of all, or he's Lord of not anything. He's not Lord at all if he's not Lord over all in our lives. Because it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I've looked, and you can talk to me after service as you want. There is no evidence that there was a gate at Jerusalem where a camel had to get down on its belly, take the load off, and get through the gate. I don't see any evidence of a gate we refer to as the needle's eye. 
I could be corrected. I've done my research, but, you know, I'm human. I do make mistakes. But I think the simple point that Jesus is making, everybody in that audience would know, his disciples would know how big a camel is. The largest Palestinian animal they had, a camel. And everybody was familiar with a needle. And the eye of a needle, how small it is, is like you're sitting here now. So we get the illustration, don't we? Well, that seems impossible, doesn't it? But that's the whole point. And Jesus says, with humans it's impossible, but with God, what? Everything is possible. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Why is that? Oh, you ready for this? Because back in their day, they thought if you had a lot of blessings, you had a lot of possessions, you had good health, and you were blessed by God, therefore you're, you're, you're blessed by God. God is, is blessing you this stuff because you're living a life that is pleasing to Him. So, the logic going, if someone who's living their life right, and we can see that by all the blessings they have in their life, then who can possibly be saved? If this guy is living a life correctly, he's blessed by God with material possessions and good health, and he can't do it, then who can? And we have people running around in our country talking about the health and wealth gospel. If you live accordingly, God will bless you with all these material things. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not see that in the Bible anywhere. What I do see Jesus talking about, you're going to come and follow me. If the world hates you, remember they first hated me. If they persecute you, remember they first persecuted me. There is a price to following Christ. And here in America, we've been blessed that we haven't seen it the way other brothers and sisters have around the world. But it is coming. And it's going to be more than just showing up on a church on Sunday morning. And that's why the disciples are just astonished. It rocks their theological word, world. I mean, this guy is living right, and he has all these things. Surely he's blessed by God, but if he can't do it, it's easier for a camel to go through eye of a needle, and who can be saved? And look at that. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know why? Because only God can regenerate the human heart. We have laws. We have a big political fight in our country. I'm not going to get into that. But a lot of it's centered around morality and morality issues. Should we have laws? Yes, we should. But you cannot legislate morality. Laws cannot change the human heart. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. Do I get concerned about the laws? Yes. But it reminds me, if I want to see things change, you've got to take the gospel to the people. Let God change the heart. Only He can do that. It makes people have a change of heart and makes it possible for them to serve Him. So naturally, after this conversation gets to this point, Peter looks at him and says, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. I mean, after all, if you're asking us to just to sell and give everything to the poor, we're pretty good models here, Jesus. We, we have left everything. He doesn't rebuke Peter for this question. It may come more from confusion than selfishness. But the disciples think they've done the, wrong, the right thing and... In the, in the roundabout way, I think he's asking, is there something I'm lacking? I, I mean, after all, I left everything and followed you. Is there something I'm lacking? And here's one point I want to make. If we do good 
and always looking, getting a reward for doing good, then we're doing good for the wrong reason. Matthew chapter 6 puts it this way. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So if we're doing all these things and want all the rewards and pats on the back, then we're doing for the wrong reason. We're doing it because we love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. And we love our neighbor as ourself. And we know that God will reward us. That in the end, God will set things straight. Don't be so concerned about your reward or lack of reward that you here on earth. He does give an indication here about what is going to happen. He says, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, this new birth, this dissolution, recreation of the cosmos. In other words, what Jesus is saying, look, nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth awaits those who follow me. He tells them that they will reign with him, that they decisively will judge the people of Israel. There's a representation going on here. The twelve represent true believers, and Israel, the lost humanity. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Or do you not know the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you not, to, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law of courts? And in that text, Paul is saying, Look, don't take your brother or sister off to these courts that are ruled by Gentiles. Straighten up among yourselves, because in verse 2, the saints will judge the world. He talks about everyone who's left houses will receive many times as much. You know what he means by that? I'm, I'm going to catch it for this one. We, we have hymnals. which is, We have great songs. In One's called A Mansion Over the Hilltop. I got a mansion. I'm not called to sing, brother. Over the hilltop. All right. We have one in the old Heavenly Highway hymn. Uh, they want to be more humble about it. They don't have a mansion on the hilltop. We just have a little cabin in the corner of glory land i believe the tongs if you if you're familiar with that i don't think that's the point I think the point jesus is making that when you serve him and sacrifice for him that there's something awaits you that far exceeds anything on earth a true family made up of brothers and sisters in christ a dwelling that will be for all eternity. We talk about the paved streets that are paved with gold. That would be great. But what is streets of gold compared to standing in the presence of God himself? 
seeing Christ. And I've said this before, but everything in heaven will be perfect because sin will be totally eradicated. Our relationship with each other will be perfect. I mean, there will be no more backstabbing, jealousy, all that stuff will be gone. And we'll have complete fellowship with our maker. What does that look like? I have no earthly idea. But I can't wait to see it. So what Jesus is talking about, this reward that you're looking for, you're going to receive a reward, Peter, that far exceeds anything that your literal human mind can't. If, if I was to tell you, your, your brain would explode. You can't comprehend it. That's what awaits all of us who are followers of Christ. Now, he does give us blessings on earth along the way. But what's the whole goal? What, what are we trying to do? We want to go to heaven, don't we? We want to be in eternity with God. And while we're on this journey, he gives us the opportunity and the privilege and the honor to invite people along the way with us. To be part of the greatest work there is. And look what he says. How he ends this. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Many well-to-do, influential people, including people within religious circles, like this rich young man in verses 16 through 22, will find themselves last, judged and excluded from the presence of God. Is there anything wrong with people having fame and money and all that? No. But what they do with it? They honor God with it? Or they say, look at me. But on the other hand, those who are all the dispossessed and powerless who have followed Christ will be honored and exalted. Especially for those who voluntarily adopted or maintained their poverty for the sake of of sake of serving Jesus. And here is a graphic picture of what the church should look like. Sharing material possessions with needy fellow believers. First John 3.17 Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? See, before we go out there and we share the gospel with people and the love of God, we have to practice and put it into place here, within the walls of the church. I mean, how can we love unbelievers if we can't love our fellow believers? How can we meet the physical and spiritual needs of those outside the church if we can't help each other here inside the church along the way? See, the real issue is not whether it's okay for one to have possessions or money. Rather, it's the heart issue, loving of oneself more than anything else. See, real love denies self for the sake of others. Jesus demonstrated that perfectly on the cross. His, he, had, he has love for us, and he demonstrated that by taking up the cross for you and me. We are to lay our lives down for the sake of the kingdom. This is why, as I said earlier, this, this sermon is called self-sacrificial love. That's what that man was missing. doesn't matter if he was rich or not. Where's his heart? 
Does he really love God and love other people? You know, it's hard times. It's extremely hard for me at times, being at the airport or going about our daily activity. It will change you. I mean, think about this. When you see someone gets you upset or mad, God loves that person just as much as he loved me. He died for that person. Changes everything. But sometimes I get wrapped up and, you know, I need to get here, need to do there. I just wish they'd get out of the way. What's wrong with them? But when I really stop and think about things, I want to share with you, in conclusion, a quote I came across by Timothy Keller. He wrote a book entitled Prodigal God. And the quote is up on the screen. And listen to what he says. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask me or put me through. I'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I'm a sinner saved by grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. I'm guilty of putting limits on God. God, I'll serve you. As long as you leave me here in the United States and Texas. Yeah, God, I'll do this as long as you do this. I'm going to tell you a story on my wife. Long ago, when I first surrendered in the ministry... I was at a Promise Keepers event. I told my pastor about it Sunday, but that Saturday night, Tammy was at work, and she come home, I had to tell her. You know what she said? Well, what does that mean? I don't know. You know what she said back to me? I'm not ready to be a pastor's wife. I don't like to wear dresses. But as time went on, I think she was watching me. See if this was kind of a real thing or just something that I, you know, some type of fad or something I was going through. We went from that to, you know what? As long as God calls you around the greater North Texas area and I keep my job there at DFW with American or I can transfer it to another city, I'm good with that. That's what we're telling God. Some year or two years after that, we're driving to work. Not saying much to anybody, and we're just kind of doing our thing. And then she, out of the blue, says this. You know, if God calls us to leave my job, to leave America, whatever he calls us to do, she said, I'll do it. And I share that story to let you know it's always a journey, a step-by-step process. God has brought you as individuals, as a church, through a lot of things these past years. And now you're here. And now he has all this stuff he's putting together in the future. And he's asking us, are you going to trust me? Are you going to step out? Are you going to...
put others before yourself? Really and truly, it comes down to this, doesn't it? Are we going to put God before ourselves as individuals and as a church? People ask me, Tim, how's your church? Well, really, it's not my church. It's the Lord's church. I just happen to serve here as pastor. What is God calling you to? What area of comfort is he calling you out of? Maybe that area that you feel lacking deep down inside that you don't tell anyone about is the area right now God's putting his finger on. and saying, let go of that and give it to me. Will we be the response of this young man? Walk away and say, there's no way I can do that. Or are we going to respond and say, God, you know, in and by myself, I cannot do this. But, Lord, I know with you all things are possible. You look at this church and you may think, what possibly can we do to make a difference? You know what God says? Tim, you're absolutely right. If you just look at the people, that's impossible. But with me, all things are possible.